Welcome back to the Now Screening Podcast. We've been away for a little while, and we just want to talk to you really quick, be honest here, and address a very serious issue going on in America. This episode is delayed because of the current state of police violence in America. Um, We felt we needed to take time away, um, partially because of Blackout Tuesday and partially because of our own involvement um, with protests and making people aware of what's going on. Um, To do our part, we're going to recommend you some movies uh, that we think could educate on the history of racism in America and the present state of racial justice in America. And hopefully uh, in the coming weeks, we can do a couple of watch parties for these movies uh, with the community to educate us all. Um, It's a small thing, but it's a start and it's being part of being an active ally. So we're going to recommend 13th, uh, which is on Netflix, Fruitvale Station, which is on Amazon Prime, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is also on Prime, Uh, Moonlight, which is on Netflix, Do the Right Thing, which I believe you have to buy right now through either YouTube Movies or Amazon Prime or iTunes, Uh, Sorry to Bother You, which is on Netflix, Black Klansman, which is on Hulu. In a lighter note, The Last Black Man in San Francisco deals pretty well with themes of uh, gentrification and whitewashing and black identity. Uh, And then I just want to make everyone aware, keep your eyes out for Lovecraft Country coming soon on HBO. Uh, It deals with racism through the lens of uh, cosmic horror, and it looks to be a pretty interesting series. So with that out of the way, uh, well, I guess not out of the way. Do you guys yeah. want to say anything on the issue? Well, I just want to add one more recommendation that uh, HBO has done Watchmen, um, tackling racism through that kind of comic book lens and extending the um, some of the issues that were brought up within the first original Watchmen series and then bringing it now, kind of teaching people about you know Tulsa and... Uh, Things that happened back in the 50s, like the huge massacre there of black people um, and kind of talking about that uh, generational trauma as well, which I think is a really cool angle um, for that series. So that's my recommendation. Uh, yeah, just you know, another thing is that obviously this this um, time with the protests and the coronavirus pandemic going on simultaneously is a really stressful and anxiety-inducing time for a lot of people. Um, so it, you might feel a lot of pressure to do, like, everything and, yeah, do the most that you can, which can be very stressful, but just try to, like, take some ac- action if you can, you know, whether it be donating to a bail fund or, um, you know, posting on your social media, talking to friends and family, or, you know, signing a petition, um, there's, you know, or going physically to a protest if you feel safe or able to. There's plenty of things you can do to uh, support this movement. And also on top of that, you know, Tyler talked about um, the community watch parties and the movies that we're considering watching together. And obviously we are open to any other suggestions that you have for us to watch or things that we can do um, to, you know, focus on this moment in time through our podcast and do a good thing. So that's all. Yeah. Awesome. Um, definitely, uh, hit us up in the Twitter DMS at now screening pod. 
Um, let us know how we can help in any way, what we should watch, what we should do, what you want to see us do. Uh, we're open for feedback and we just, we want to contribute in this time. And, uh, the now screening podcast, uh, stands with black lives matter movement. Um, and, uh, all lives can't matter until black lives do. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I just want to put that in there. Um, Amen. Amen, brother. Okay. This is going to be nothing short of a very hard transition because uh, the theme of this podcast has nothing to do um, with social and racial justice. But recently, in good news, I guess I should say, we all uh, have the Criterion Collection, which is awesome, or a Criterion Channel, Criterion Channel. I forget the name. But, We've upgraded. Um, yeah. <laughs> are we are we officially a movie podcast now that we're yeah. we're on Criterion? <laughs> I guess I should fill people in for those who don't know. Uh, the Criterion Collection is a uh, a film restoration uh, collective that works on uh, preserving and restoring films of the past that are. Um, culturally and artistically and aesthetically significant um, or impactful. And they do a lot of anthology series. The Criterion Channel is their streaming service. Um, it's pretty reasonably priced, actually, right? A yeah. whole year is only like $100 yeah, or something? A, yeah, it's not bad at all. I um, think yeah. that's even... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's less than a Netflix for a whole family for a year. So that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, you can, you can do monthly or yearly payments, but you do save about $30 if you opt for the yearly over the monthly, over the same time span. It's curated bangers. <laughs> Come yeah, on. Yeah, I love it. They have like so many. It's really unique how they have these different sort of playlists on there. Of um, They do like double features where they curate a playlist of two movies that they think are of the same theme. Or they have directors or, you know, people in the film community come on and um, recommend films. And then they make a playlist of those films that they have it's just really unique and yeah. a cool way of showing the content that i haven't seen from any other streaming service yeah and also like what streaming service is going to have like 14 films by andre tarkovsky like <laughs> right. no, no one it's it's such a niche thing but at the same time i'm so glad it exists mm-hmm. so Anyway, we're not sponsored by them, but uh, if you want to sponsor the pod, <laughs> hey. <laughs> we're here. The pod yeah. only fans. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, pod Patreon or something. I don't even know. Can't, hey, can't man. I want to give them my money at this point. I just want them to send me a coffee mug or a t-shirt yeah. or something. You know that what I mean? Be, that would be enough. That would be plenty enough. Oh, <laughs> uh, we can't hear you. Yeah, your audio uh, lagged out. What flavor white claw is that? It's the uh, the ruby grapefruit white claw. <laughs> nice. What's the uh, the other red one? It's not watermelon, is it? Um, isn't there like a black cherry one? That's that's the one I like. That that might be it. Yeah. yeah we're back. Wow. Sorry. Sorry about that, guys. Uh, I I don't know why it does this, but sometimes the mic the mic just glitches out. So anyway. Uh, this was the first time any of us have seen all of these or any of these movies, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. Yes. Okay. Yes. First time watches. Well, we picked some good ones. Um, so let's start with our discussion of In a Lonely Place, which was a pick uh, that Andy picked, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I was talking about how I like um, 
how Criterion does those playlist suggestions. Um, and the way that I found in a lonely place was that uh, Josh and Benny Safdie, they had have their own playlist on there of their recommendations. And it's a lonely place. In a lonely place was the first one on there. And I just dove into it without really knowing anything about it. And hey, here we are. <laughs> I really liked it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. I was going to mention that when we were talking, I was like, oh, the Safdie brothers, you know, that if, if there was one meme to identify with the podcast so far, <laughs> it's that we just, we can't go through an episode without mentioning uncut gems is really, the yeah, we, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the meme. So the, the watch yeah. party we had before though was, uh, that was a really good time Oh yeah, when baby. I was finally on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, the watch parties have been really fun on a side note. So if any of you are listening and have suggestions for things to watch, uh, let us know because those have been a hit so far. Yeah, I those really have been talking to you guys. Those have been really, really awesome. I've really enjoyed the ones that I've made it out to. Um, so getting into In a Lonely Place, um, came out in 1950, was directed by Nicholas Ray and stars Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. Uh, the basic plot summary here is that uh, Humphrey Bogart stars as Dixon Steele. He goes by Dix, so we're probably just going to call him that for the rest of the time. Hell get, yeah. Get your, get your giggles out now. Get your giggles out now. Get your, I, I didn't, I didn't know Dick Steele, baby. Dick, Dick Steele. Yeah, it was a different time, man. Dick Steele was just, it wasn't funny back in the day. It was just a name. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Dix is a deranged and troubled screenwriter suspected of murder and, uh, Gloria Graham co-stars as Laurel Gray, uh, his neighbor who he ends up in a romantic relationship with. Um, and it basically is a movie that deals with, uh, identity, tormented love, and it's a commentary on, um, stardom and Hollywood and the creative process and all sorts of different things. Um, so without spoilers, uh, what did we think of this movie? Me personally, I really enjoyed it a lot. It was the first movie I watched on Criterion and I think that was a great start for sure. Um, I think I, you know, I haven't, really watched many like noir movies but i know that that's up my alley and that's the type of thing that i enjoy um anything with like a murder mystery i usually enjoy if it's well done and i had never watched a humphrey bogart movie either and he we're going to talk about this more but he kills it in this he's amazing um so that was cool um but i thought the overall i thought the story was interesting and I thought uh, the acting was great, not just from Humphrey Bogart, um, but I thought it really gripped me and it has some real memorable moments and is also a movie about movies, which is another thing I love. Yeah. So, yeah, overall, great experience for me. I really liked it. I'd say the same because, I mean, I don't really watch a lot of old films in general. And then even like noir films, this is really my first, I guess, delving into a noir films and Same. great start for criterion for me um yeah this this film kind of had me so i was watching it on my bed like laying uh, on my belly like <laughs> kicking my feet like oh wow this is like very aesthetically pleasing like a nice uh, it's like nice love story and then as it progresses i'm like oh man that hits <laughs> that, yeah. that hits different there are um, some lines in here that are so classic hollywood 
it hits so yeah. hard that I I enjoy so much. Because I, I watched a lot of Twilight Zone when it was on Netflix, so it reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like, it was nice watching something that was, you know, like longer form, and then it has that noir feel where it's just like very intimate and uh, you know talking about those relationships and you know that stylistically was cool. So those are my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I totally agree with you, Andy. Like, noir is, I love film noir. Uh, I think where I differ from you guys is that having the, I don't want to call it like a a classical film education, but like Mm -hmm. I I took, I had the opportunity to see a lot more um, older noir films. Um, So I think this one kind of didn't hit me as hard um, because I've seen... um, you know, Sunset Boulevard, which came out in the same year as this and is, is like functionally like it deals with a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just Sunset Boulevard is like in my top five of movies ever. Yeah. So maybe like, we should do that because since we, <laughs> we all, since we all really like enjoyed this type of movie, noir, maybe we should do Sunset Boulevard soon. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I agree with you because, you know, after I watched, uh, in a lonely place, I was just looking up what other people thought of it online, like on Reddit and just Googling the movie and whatnot. And a lot of people were saying, you know, this is considered a great noir film and up, you know, up there in the top tier, but not like the best. You know, it's it's in the top 20, maybe. Uh, yeah, definitely. Know, 10 even Top 10 even. But no, it's not. It's not considered like the goat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> By most people. I mean, like, you know, not to just like rail off a bunch of noir movies, but like Double Indemnity, uh, Sunset Boulevard, Anatomy of a Murder, and this are all like pretty God-tier noir movies. Oh. Before before I forget, I will say one thing I did see online is that some people do say that this is Humphrey Bogart's best acting performance, if some people believe that. Let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Spoilers to follow for uh, In a Lonely Place. Get your 14 day free trial of the Criterion channel. Watch this and then come back and listen. Okay. Anyway, Humphrey Bogard. Go, Andy. Okay. Um, so, as you said, he plays sort of an aging. He's a writer and director, or is he just a writer? I think he's just a screenwriter. I don't think yeah. he directs. He's just a screenwriter. But he has a bunch of director uh, but- friends. Anyway. But yeah, he's clearly um, someone who is held in, you know, a bit of a high esteem. He's clearly, it's it's assumed that he's done a lot of work before in the film industry, but he hasn't done anything in a while. Um, and y- you can kind of assume that he's maybe considered a bit washed up at this point by some people. He has a fancy house um, in... Is it like Beverly Hills or something? I think it might something be. Something like that. Something like that. Um, but his personality is really what stands out here about him. He is a loner, <laughs> as the title suggests. It's in a lonely place. He has a violent streak to him as well. Um, mm-hmm. But he also has charm, which is really interesting. He's intelligent, clearly. He has writing skill, which is displayed in the film. He's going through a bit of a writer's block when you're first introduced to him, but you see his his skill displayed later on. Um, but yeah, he's he's a complex character because 
one moment he'll be charming someone and seem seeming like he's such a charismatic guy. And the next thing you'll see his explosive anger that literally strikes fear into the people around him. And Humphrey Bogart really pulls that off incredibly. Like the, tr- the way that he transitions from one <laughs> emotion to the next in an instant is absurd. So yeah, that's a little bit about the character. Um, it definitely a really interesting character and in how he develops throughout the film. How did you feel about the character, Tyler? Um, yeah, so about the transitions is, is what I, I really wanted to talk about because I think that really highlights um, how skilled of an actor Humphrey Bogart is. Um, I haven't watched a lot of his movies, admittedly, but what I loved about this so much is that he, like you said, he would be you know charming and kind of funny or like playful at the beginning of a scene and then would totally shift into this like murderous, violent, like beating the shit out of someone on the side of the highway evil streak and it felt totally believable and i think um that is like really hard to do because there's 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 performers like you know nicholas cage who like it's always at 11 it's just Uh screaming and like it's so extreme and like when they try to be subtle it's not and i think humphrey bogart in this movie really plays um dynamically with his character and with himself and he just he just kills it he just kills it and to me when i was watching it i i did notice how crazy it was when you can kind of pinpoint those moments where he's like it's just in his eyes right when he's like suddenly oh i'm about to like blow up you know he's like a volcano where (laughs) or i don't even know if it's a volcano or or something but it's just like he'll be calm for a little bit and like lovey-dovey and then suddenly it'll tick and you'll see his eyes like that anger in his eyes it's just (laughs) it's scary it's actually scary what and yeah Yeah. sorry go ahead okay so um i was just gonna say there are several scenes where you see that uh come into play um like there's a scene where he's at a dinner table and so something sets him off when he's at the beach that happens as well mm-hmm. it's just so many times throughout the film i uh i think part of jl's talking about eyes i think uh in the presentation of this movie um eyes play a really important role um the 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 50s and i guess the golden era of hollywood kind of had this thing where they would try to show male faces in like really angular intense lighting and then female faces have like a soft uh it almost looks like there's a smudge on the camera over their face because their features are so soft and this movie like really really plays with that i mean there's there's the one scene at the dinner where humphrey bogart is describing this this murder that has happened right and like half his face is in shadow and he's got these like crazy eyes and he's like leaning (laughs) into the camera Oh my God, it's, it's awesome. And yeah, I think, I think that presentation or that, that conscious choice to do that and like almost not parody what was going on in Hollywood at the time, but really lean into it. Like it paid off pretty well. Yeah. And I think it's worth talking about how we are exposed to these different sides of him. Yeah. And it's because of the central conflict that he is accused of a murder 
Mm-hmm. And the way that happens is pretty interesting. He he's being pitched a story that it's it's a book, and a director wants him or a producer wants him to write a script for it and write a movie for it. And so he invites a girl over to his house to read the book to him or summarize the story. So. Trash man. So he doesn't want to read the book because he's he like depressed or lazy or whatever. But yeah. And anyway, she comes over and she summarizes the book for him. He hates it. He clearly doesn't want to do the job. Uh, she <laughs> le- she leaves. It's honestly not very eventful at all. She leaves his house, and then the next day, a cop comes to his house and tells him that she was murdered. And the only person that ever saw him during this whole time, or saw him the night before that can vouch for him, is his neighbor, um, Gloria Graham, playing... Uh, what is her name? Laurel. Yeah. yeah. Laurel. Yanny, so, Yanny and Laurel. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Yanny and Laurel. So, so Laurel is the only one that can vouch for him. And she says that she saw the girl leave his house alone, uh, you know, unharmed. Nothing happened to her. And uh, so that means that she must have been killed by someone else, not um, Humphrey Bogart, not Dix. So... The whole movie centers around him being accused of this crime and also his developing relationship with Laurel. And that ties into his creative process and how that affects that. And um, I think you found that part interesting, Tyler. Yeah, well, I mean, I just really like, we talked about it earlier, movies about movies. Um, But when you start to like, get into like very meta stuff where it's like about the creative process and getting stuck in the creative process. Like, um, yeah, I just, I think it's a really interesting angle and it, it, it's very, um, autobiographical in a way, you know what I mean? Like it, 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 uh, it feels like he's the, the director is projecting almost. And Mm -hmm. I really like the scenes of, um, Dick's at the typewriter so, so basically he falls in love with Laurel or they start a relationship and Dix, Dix is bad with women. Like this is a whole thing. Like he's, he's on and off again with women and he can never keep them around because of his violent streak, yada, yada, whatever, classic 50s setup. So there's, anyway, they move in or they start spending more time together. And when she's over there, he's like full of inspiration. She's the muse and he's like at the typewriter going crazy. He's like up all night. He's written like 60 pages. He wrote this whole story that he doesn't even care about. Right. Like he thinks this book is trash, but he's like, well, she's here. So now I have something to inspire me yeah. to write. And he's he just goes to town. And it's very. I think he, uh, um, does he di- I, I think he might actually ditch the book story entirely and just writes his own thing. Am oh, I really? I, yeah. I think, uh, I, I think, I think when he submitted the script, they were like, that was it like the producer or whatever. He was like, oh, like this is really different from the book, but it's still a really good script. But yeah, I mean that's just. I, th- I think he ditches thing. the book entirely, and that's yeah. why. He, that, yeah. I guess I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't really pick up on that, but yeah. Okay, so yeah, well, I, I don't know. Important. I really liked the him at a typewriter, completely unaware to the world, and like his producer friends all happy because there's a woman in his life keeping him like 
motivated and stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's just uh, it's this really interesting look into a like the the tortured artist and like seeking inspiration in any form that it can. And for Dix, it's apparently women or whatever. And you mentioned it. I really like the the scenes that are specifically super meta about the film industry and how you create a good movie. Uh, that actually is probably the most, one of them is the most memorable scene from the movie is when Dix um, is in the car with Laurel and he says to her, you know, I have this line for the movie, but I'm not sure where I should put it. And she goes, what's the line? And he goes, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me and I lived for a few weeks while she loved me. And then he makes her repeat that line. And it also ends up being the concluding line for the movie. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's going to come back at some point when you first hear it, because it's like such an impactful line, but it's still awesome when it does. I love, I love when it shows up at the end of the movie too. And that was straight bars when they did it too. Yeah. Because when she repeated it back to him in the car, she only did those first two parts. And then mm-hmm. at the very end, I think that was the, she completed at the end. She didn't even say the first two. She said, I lived a few weeks while uh, oh, she loved me or something like that. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool reincorporating it. I like that it was written it was his words, but she was saying them mm-hmm. like, that's a fun, like, I, I think the scene or the line would not have hit the same if he was just saying what he had wrote. It's the fact that she is saying it, recalling it, saying it again. as he's like leaving like that yeah. makes it a better, um, that just makes it better. Yeah. Uh, there were also just, um, a couple other lines and scenes that I really loved. One of the lines that is really not even super significant, it seems at first, but I just enjoyed it, was at the very beginning of the movie, he's talking to his ex, I believe, and, you know, he's kind of being, you know, a dick. He's kind of being a jerk. <laughs> and, and she says, do you look down on all women or just the ones you know? And it's just such a biting line that I just didn't expect, especially out of a 1950s. Yeah, for the 50s, that's good. So I really enjoyed that. And then the other, like, the meta scene that I liked besides that was the grapefruit knife scene. Oh, the best. The best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, do you want to take that one? No, no, go ahead. Oh, so he's, so Dix is in the kitchen and he is, you know, working with a grapefruit knife. And is that what it is? And he, what is it? Grapefruit or what? Yeah. Yeah. It's so like a grapefruit spoon or whatever has like a natural like curve to it. So you can actually get in there and get the grapefruit out. And (laughs) I guess this dude has never like lived normally because he's like a weird tortured artist living alone and depressed or whatever. So he flattens the knife out and it's like actually this comedic moment. Uh, keep going, Andy. Oh, so he flattens it out. Uh, she comes in and kind of jokes about the fact that he flattened the, the spoon, even though it wasn't supposed to be flattened. And then they start talking about, uh, romance. And he says that in a movie, 
basically he says the most romantic scenes are the ones that are just <clears throat> these natural conversations that might seem I- insignificant where it, where you know they're just in the kitchen talking about food and he even says like look at us right now anyone mm. could tell that we're in love with each other and i think that's great fourth wall shattered right <laughs> but it's not corny when they do it it's not yeah. like no, it's not it's not like an action star looking at the camera and being like oh whatever you know it's it's actually good yeah what did you guys think about the shift in perspective? So the way that I see this movie is that it's pretty clearly divided into two halves of the movie. The first half is from the perspective of Dix as he is trying to find inspiration. We follow along with him, his daily routine, uh, him kind of getting framed for this murder and then not framed, but you know, the, he's the prime suspect. Uh, and mm-hmm. then he starts falling in love with Laurel. And then as soon as they start spending more time together, we shift over to Laurel's perspective uh, and she kind of becomes the focus. How did you guys yeah. think that was handled? I, I did like how they did that. And I think it's only natural because, I mean, every relationship, there's going to be two sides. So exploring her side and kind of her view of Dix's behaviors, which I don't remember if we kind of, I mean, we were, we were kind of previewed it in the beginning with the dinner table scene at his friend's house. But um, yeah, getting to see her side, I thought was a really great choice in telling the story. So, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. And I think Gloria, Gloria Graham did a really good job. I thought she was, she was great in this, um, especially that second half that focused more on her. She was fantastic. I think she really portrayed the just, absolute anxiety inducing experience it was for her to be around this man the entire time with his volatility and i think that whole second of half of the movie focusing on her shows uh is kind of showing that it dicks the the initial conflict is whether or not he killed this woman but mm. it starts to matter less and less to um to i think laurel because dix starts showing his capacity to kill anyway which is just as terrifying like even though you don't know that he's killed the girl that visited his house at the beginning of the movie he almost kills a man almost murders a guy right in front of her which is terrifying and rightfully makes her absolutely in fear of him well before we go on with that i just want to say that i guess she isn't really without her faults either because we know he's i guess his aggression might stem from some insecurity he seems very dependent on her kind of using her as the muse and putting his own happiness placing it with her which is obviously a huge burden but then she's also someone i think it was mentioned early on in the movie that she kind of you know has or had another partner before this, she just kind of ran away and uh, kind of has commitment issues. So she is literally flighty. Like yeah. that is like mm-hmm. the, she literally will just get on a plane and get a, get the heck out of Dodge. So, so now you have yeah. that relationship where <laughs> like really desperate, needy and someone who's flighty and it's just, whew, yeah, it's, it's a, a recipe bomb. for disaster. Yeah. 
And I think you mentioned this really briefly, Tyler, but I think there's one scene that ties all of this together. Like his murderous rage. Um, you know, we talked about how he can transition from calm to absolutely terrifying. And then also this scene uh, showcases his creativity. And I think it's the scene where he visited, visits the police officer's house and they want him to reenact what the murder, to, to show what the murder would have looked like. Yeah, the and, dinner scene. Yeah. yeah, The dinner scene, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the dinner scene. Um, and he, the way that he reenacts that is terrifying. Um, and it also just shows his creativity. I was thinking of, there's another dinner scene at the end. I was thinking of the dinner scene when we were talking earlier at the end where he oh, right, hits yeah. his old friend. It, it oh, has the yeah. glasses. Yeah, so there's like the best character in the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that guy yeah. rocks. I, I kind of like the thespian guy. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> oh yeah, that guy. That's the guy I'm thinking of. Sorry, yeah. man. The so, thespian yeah. guy's great. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's so underrated. But no, I basically uh, Dix has a problem with dinner scenes. Apparently, where he just can't keep his goal. But no, um, that scene I thought just showcased like he was being such a good storyteller but it was terrifying and it also made it look like he may have been the murderer (laughs) because he retold he told it so well and that ties into that scene where they're in the car and he puts his arm around her yes Mm -hmm. oh Oh my god God. because he says that the way that the guy would have the guy killed her was by putting his arm around her and Mm -hmm. and you're choking her out and yeah really disturbing stuff extremely especially i mean this was a time post-war cinema like got violent really fast. Like it went from like, you know, pre-war cinemas sit like nice and all, all motion picture uh, Academy censored and all this stuff to like immediately boom, noir films, gangster movies, like violence. So yeah, for the time that was pretty like radical to suggest that uh, there was domestic violence and you have domestic murder happening. Right. Right. <laughs> So, um, yeah. Uh, that guy that you mentioned, the thespian guy. Yeah, I love him. It's this older. It's this older guy that <laughs> seems kind of. I think he's basically kind of senile, and he's also an alcoholic. I think, but yeah. he's he's always calling people like thespian and prince and things like that. <laughs> that's kind of how him and uh, him and Dicks. Uh, communicate with each other and it, it's it kind of shows like a soft side to totally. uh, yeah. steel which is cool well the way i read it was like so that guy's like 80 in the movie or mm-hmm. pro- like he's old and he's calling everyone thespian and stuff because i'm assuming he was like implied to be working before movies existed like i assumed oh, he was a, i assumed he was a play like a literal thespian right like he oh God, had a career that. as a you know because i guess uh yeah 1880s he probably would have been i i don't know i it's not established but i assumed he was a a uh, stage actor not a screen actor oh i think and, you're totally right and that's that why he's so sense. he's so goddamn like theatrical. I mean, literally. I mean, he's drunk all the time, but like he's throwing his arms everywhere, and he's like, "Oh, good sir!" Like, "Oh my god!" Like, and his outfit. Uh, that was my letterbox oh, yeah. review. Just the one quote. Like, uh, he walks into the restaurant. 
This isn't a costume, you ignorant wench. Me, <laughs> 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 anytime someone looks at me weird in the grocery store. <laughs> it's a thing. Yeah, the first time Dix um, beats somebody up is defending that guy. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, which is interesting. He has a violent streak, but he has that soft side because it's like he's usually... Minus the road rage scene, he's only beating people up. I guess there's two road rage scenes because it opens with the road rage scene. Okay, maybe Dix <laughs> isn't that nice. I guess he's, he's just, <laughs> You know what I just realized? What's you know what I just realized we haven't said? What? We can't ignore the fact that he literally is seconds away from killing Laurel at the end of this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's, that's another he, pretty bad. He's, he's uh, throwing hands on literally everybody. And that's what yeah. I was, I think that's what I was getting at with the, uh, my volcano metaphor or whatever earlier is like, there's just, like, slowly things building up. She went to go get interrogated by the cops and then, like, gives the script to the producer and all this stuff. And then he sees her about to run away. And then that's, like, his tipping point. Now he's, you know, taking out his anger on her. And, uh, yeah, that was a very kind of scary moment at the end. That scene um, is parallel action done perfectly. So the the key here is that the two characters don't know all of the information um, that the, the audience does. They reveal right before that scene that the boyfriend of the dead girl is the murderer. He mm-hmm. confesses to the murder and Dix is off the hook. And... <laughs> basically as Dix is choking out Laurel, they get the phone call where it's like, Hey man, uh, you're good by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but at that point, like, oh, that's also another banger line of the movie where she says, uh, I, I forget what it was exactly, but, um, Oh, if we, if we had this new, or we could have used this news yesterday, but it doesn't matter now. Yeah, and you see him walking away in defeat the moment his his heart breaks again with his eyes like when he's at the door you can just see it like the defeat and oh god the regret great lines uh yeah that that scene was really really tough um there's another line she has earlier that i liked when she's talking to her friend that's i think married to the cop and she's yeah. trying to kind of she's trying to uh, get some comfort from her friend and she's talking about how she's you know nervous about dicks and she's like i i don't know if he's actually killed this girl or not and the girl she's talking to is clearly very concerned and laurel says i expected you to laugh this off when i told you mm-hmm. about this but you're not laughing <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, like- so that was that was a good one too. Wonderful writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I liked it. Um, anything else we want to talk about with this? I think we've kind of hit all the big talking points here. It's a pretty uh, yeah direct yeah. movie. I have one weird hypothetical question, actually. Mm. So, do you what do you think uh, Dix's life would have been like if? this hadn't happened if he had never been accused of being a murderer i I feel like it could go so many ways for me i think that he still 
has some insecurities that he needed to deal with even before the relationship Absolutely. because that came out at the end where you know she's gonna run away and like all of that any i guess healthy relationship i don't think that was gonna happen <laughs> like no. i wouldn't even get to that point so no he was clearly going through uh, it looked like a depression to me and then absolutely he also had that, mm-hmm. and then he also had that extreme anger management problem which i think would definitely come back to bite him at some point like he'd either seriously hurt someone or even kill someone possibly um so i think that could happen and yeah he also has it's heavily implied that he hit his ex-girlfriend he he has a lot of issues that could come back to bite him regardless of you know even if he didn't get accused of this murder i think he could have some serious issues in the future if he didn't get himself figured out lesson of the movie is men go to a therapist right (laughs) (laughs) no exactly exactly like and that's why um you ask like would this sort of thing have happened regardless absolutely like this man is a he's a mess and he needs to just come to terms with it and learn himself live his truth you know what i mean yeah um yeah that was just my last question i thought that was an interesting you know interesting thought i had at the end of the movie I'm going to I'm going to voice my biggest critique, my biggest gripe uh of the movie really quick. Yeah. I think they kind of um they kind of too quickly imply that Laurel is getting out of there. I think we spend too much time between her So basically after the car ride home She's like, I got to get out of this thing. And then we have this whole engagement arc and like there's a bunch of other stuff going on with like the police figuring out about the actual murderer. And I just felt like they kind of did things out of order for the, what the audience knows. I, I was kind of like mm-hmm. a little bored after the, uh, the driving mm-hmm. sequence. That's just my only complaint. No, that actually, that, yeah, that's, that's completely fair. Um, yeah, I think, I think there could have been another, if they could have just had another just really gripping scene at some point between like the driving scene and the ending. Exactly. I think you're right. There is kind of a gap where there's a bit of a lull. There is, there, there is like important plot development happening, but you're not having any of those real like wow scenes yeah happen. the yeah. first half is like every other scene or like every scene has something wow about it and then mm-hmm. the second half you have the driving scene the grapefruit scene and then the end and so i just kind of wanted something more no that's true yeah i think i agree with you on that one so we would all recommend this check it out uh and if you like this we're probably going to do sunset boulevard soon too which is like the same thing Troubled artist, murder, mystery, noir, and it rocks. Cool. Sick. Nice. Um, yeah, so eight and a half time, boys. Hell yes. Sounds good to me. So we just got done uh, discussing a movie about a adult baby who has anger issues and temper tantrums and women issues and is a struggling screenwriter, movie producer, etc., and now we get to talk about a movie about an adult baby with anger and women <laughs> issues who is a struggling movie creator, uh, which 
I didn't even know that this was about this. Right? So. <laughs> well, like, yeah. two kind of <laughs> things about the same. People making movies. It's uh, the theme of this and week's getting, getting stuck. Getting stuck yeah. making new movies. Although this one is like literally just about being completely stuck making yeah. a movie. There's so much to unpack with this movie, dude. Let's <laughs> go. Yeah, there's so much. So we're talking about Eight and a Half, a 1963 Italian movie by Federico Fellini, starring Marcello Mastroianni, uh, Barbara Steele, Sandra Milo. And if I sat here and named the entire cast, I would be here for a week because they literally have a full movie production team as the cast. It's insane. It's it's this huge, huge movie. Uh, It's a surrealist comedy drama following a famous Italian director who suffers from stifled creativity as he attempts to direct an epic science fiction film. Now, I think that summary does a pretty bad job (laughs) of explaining what this movie actually is. Aside from surrealist uh, comedy drama. (laughs) It's a lot. It's, to me, it's a man in the throes of an absolutely life-ending depressive episode trying to grapple with so many different things while also making a movie. And the way that the, the, the movie portrays him dealing with his problems is through these absolutely nutso visions that he keeps mm-hmm. having. Um, yeah, do you think... Do you have anything else to add to that, that guys? That's a great summary. This movie of all the movies we've done has got to be the hardest to summarize out of them all (laughs) because there is so much happening here and so many different topics that you can like dive into that it's so hard to sum up and it's probably part of the director's intention when he made this movie he knew this one was 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 going to have a lot going on so I i think you did the best job possible but, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it's very intentionally insane, and there's just like it's about the mind, really, and like how many thoughts do you have in a day? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's just really capturing that like panic and constant thinking, and oh my god, suddenly I'm thinking about something that I haven't thought about since I was 12 years old. You know what I mean? Right. Like feeling, and it's it's really. I think it's really beautifully handled how they did everything. What are you guys? What are you guys' thoughts on? This yeah, because it was. It's just so seamless, and I mean, I it's kind of that way in real life, right? When you're kind of sitting there and like daydreaming or like recalling memory, it's just like the way that they visualize it in the movie and seamlessly switch between reality and fantasy. I thought was so well done and so beautiful, but also extremely fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with yeah. the seamlessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's super seamless. I will say um, that I felt like that it tackled a lot of different things, and it transitioned to a bunch of different things. Um, so much so that it did lose me a bit. I can't lie. I feel like in the last hour and a half, maybe hour. I felt like it was dragging. Like it wasn't it wasn't like uninteresting. I was there was a lot going on, 
but I wasn't captivated by it at the end of the movie myself. Like, I, it's weird. At the end of the movie, one of the thoughts I had was, I think it's, I think the discussion of this movie for me is going to be more entertaining than the movie was for me. Yeah. And that's just me. Okay. Like, I know a lot of people love this film and I think it's good. I just think it does lose me at points totally. and it, and it drags for me near the end for me at points. I would describe it as feeling its length. It definitely, mm-hmm. it's a two and a half hour movie and like it feels it because it's such a constant assault. Like there's no breaks in this movie. It is always hitting you with something. And like even the downtime, you know, it's just like, all right, it's two minutes till Guido, the director has another crazy vision. Like we're just, yeah. we're just buying time. Yeah. Right. And then I guess for me, yeah, I didn't really get it air quotes with my fingers uh, until the last like 15 or not 15, like 30 minutes or so. But even then, I still don't really get it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really excited to discuss this one with you guys. Sweet. So let's uh, officially mark this as the spoiler discussion part of eight and a half. Uh, I think we'd all recommend it for a truly unique experience, but mm. there's not a lot to go into here unless we just start spoiling the crap out of it. So uh, the movie focuses on uh, Guido, director Guido, which is just the most Italian name imaginable. <laughs> and he's basically this mid-career director who is... Where to start? Okay. He's struggling to make this very epic and personal science fiction movie that he wants to make, but that's in the background. Also in the background, he's dying. The movie opens with him like sick in bed and he's getting these archaic medical treatments. They're like, oh, go to the wellness spa, put, put mud on your face, sit in the holy water, like such insane, just pseudoscience bullshit. And then basically the rest of the movie is different characters who are involved in the movie or in his life in some way, dogging him for even the slightest bit of accountability. This whole movie, Guido is just ignoring people, subverting people. He's not taking responsibility for anything. The movie's not getting done. His marriage is falling apart. His mistress is falling apart. Like everything around him is just chaos. Um, And, uh, Basically, um, the the first the first scene that we get is is a vision. Uh, it's shit. I'm trying to remember it now. I don't even. It's the uh, the car, right? It, oh he's, my um... god! Yes, yes. Oh yes. Yeah. That was like, oh my god! What an opening to a movie, dude. <laughs> right? He's in there. It, I mean, it kind of seems off at first, and then once the car starts, it starts smoking and filling up the car, and he's like banging on the glass, and then it cuts to everyone around him in the other car is just staring at him, like not even yeah. doing anything. It's really uh, eerie, and <laughs> it really grabs you from the start. It sets the tone for this anxiety. He's the center of attention, and he hates it nightmare mm-hmm. for the rest of the movie. The difference is, is that in real life. Uh, he's a, a womanizer, and that's not addressed at all in his in his dream. But uh, yeah, so I think um, that's going to be the place to start because that's the through line here. Yeah, 
is that basically all of these visions are brought on by the different women that he interacts with. And it starts with uh, the Barbara Steele character, this British actress who his very old director friend uh, is dating this younger woman. And he like sees her and he has this like crazy vision in the wellness spa, like everybody's singing and dancing and all this crazy shit. And then like, she's just actually like real and they are, and it's, it's super bizarre. Um, that was the one outside, right? In the beginning. Was that that, that one? Okay. And it's got the crazy, like, uh, what's the, the dun 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 the score in this movie Classic. is so like like bombastic and like you know like big marching band. It's literally like all the the now royalty free bombastic classical music. Like I don't even know if they had in the Hall of the Mountain King in there at some point. I feel like he was just humming it at some point. Totally. But that's that's got to be in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Uh. And then who else do we introduce to? I don't really know if we have to go through like every woman in the movie, but basically the the, the big ones are uh, his mistress, whose name is Carla, I believe, right? And then his mm-hmm. wife, Louisa. Yeah. Um, and then this reoccurring, I think she's really important, this reoccurring prostitute from his childhood. Yes. Yeah. What is her name? Like Zangita or something? Yeah. It's Zagita. Let me look up the... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. Um, thing it's uh, it's she's basically the representation of like uh, temp- temptation. Is yeah, basically uh, her whole role. Yeah, she's um, super tied to the whole Catholicism aspect of the movie. Yeah, the uh, priest or I think they were priests. Um, tell him that she is the devil. Like they actually call her the devil. And that, yeah, yeah, I think that, like, starts his whole um, disrespect or fear of women or, like, whatever whatever his relationship is. I don't really know how to perfectly articulate it, um, but it begins with his Catholic upbringing. He yeah. has, he definitely has I, commitment I found her name, issues. by the way. Saragina, I think you're right. Saragina, yep, yeah. that's it. The beach woman. The beach uh, woman. Yeah, she's like, like, yeah, she's homeless, or you know, I, I thought she kind of she lives on the beach in a little hut, and him and the other uh, boys in his childhood go to the beach and watch mm-hmm. her dance, which is kind of sexual in a weird way. And for 1963 it was yeah it's it's yeah it's it's bizarre and the uh guido gets um in trouble for this with i mentioned this with the priests uh the catholic priests and they tell him that she's the devil and i think you got that right where it's like that's where his whole complicated relationship with temptation begins i yeah, and you don't really get that until the middle half, or I guess the middle third of the movie. Um, but yeah, that's that's where it all begins. Guido has this very Catholic upbringing, and then as he grows into adulthood, he kind of falls out of it, or so it's implied. Um, and it's like the, it's like Italian Catholic upbringing, where it's every facet of your life 
when you're growing up. <laughs> so it clearly shapes him. He's raised in a, a parish, a church. I don't even know what you would yeah, call it. But I'm like, not sure either. he doesn't have. So again, here's your abandonment themes beginning. He doesn't have a mom or a dad. He's raised by priests and nuns. And that, you know, boom, day one, he has abandonment and commitment issues, mommy issues, daddy issues, whatever you yeah. want to call it. He's got problems with, um, you know, authority, respecting people, respecting himself, respecting women, superiors, inferiors, all that sort of thing. Um, and it's this really interesting jumping off point for the character, um, I think, because it gets him into the entire trouble of the movie, which is that he can't focus on making his films because he's mm -hmm. too depressed slash also like crazy horny. So like, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the right way to put it, though. He he can't stop looking at women it's every single major uh female character in this movie he like stares at her and gets transfixed by her at some point yeah there's that one french actress who he has no time for with the with the bunny ears yeah, <laughs> anytime right. anytime she talks to him he's like no shut up i don't want to hear what you like i don't even know why i brought you on this movie like shut up and, and i do i do like that too because that's like the epitome of him dodging questions because she's the one who's always asking him what her role is in the movie and he's always like i'll tell you tomorrow i love that shit because like how ridiculous is it? He brings all these people to this crazy, amazing spa. And they're like, sweet, we're going to record a movie. Director, what are we going to do? And then basically <laughs> there's entire scenes of him running around the hotel. And he starts to talk to someone and they're like, oh, so when are we doing this? And he's like, scoozy, scoozy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is like the ultimate anxiety of when you get caught up in a lie and then the way that you decide to go about it is by just letting the lie snowball and get bigger and bigger. <laughs> and it's just terrifying. Like, it even gives me anxiety watching this develop because you know it can't end well. It can't, this is all going to blow up in his face. You know it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I like that aspect of it. I think doomed characters are fun to follow because, like, I don't know why, but I really wanted him to like figure his shit out. I, I so yeah. many times in the movie, I was like, dude, like just stop with the stop with the mistress. Like you don't even yeah. like her. Like he's like he literally doesn't care about her like in public at all. Like he treats her like shit. Uh, and he, she's like <laughs> she's like sick. She's like having like a, a hundred and four like degrees. Yeah. yeah. And he just shows up in the hotel room and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Like, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, sorry, I'm kind of bouncing off, but when... Go ahead. Like, his his actual wife, Louisa, like, I feel Louisa. so bad. Yeah. I feel so bad for his wife. <laughs> she, I don't know, she's just, she, she sees through his bullshit and sees everything that he's doing. And he 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 has a huge lying problem, like oh, not just about the not just awesome. about the movie, yeah. but about his about his um, adultering. mistresses adultering, and he he lies like bold faced. 
Like, he will say it with full confidence. Luisa tells him, like, she's with her friend and him at the same time. Another woman that I think he has a thing for a little bit, uh, by the way, is one She's of like friends. his mom. I, like, read yeah. that. We can get into that in a minute. Go, keep going with the Luisa. It's weird. But, yeah, yeah, she's like his mom. But, anyways, Luisa's, like, he can tell. She even makes fun of him. She's like, he can tell a lie, and he looks like he completely believes it. I know he's lying. <laughs> he just keeps going. It's crazy. He's extremely Guido. <laughs> Ladies, if you exactly. watch this movie and your man is doing this stuff, drop him immediately. <laughs> he's, he's, he is so manipulative. He's, it's so bad. And it, it's not even like it comes from this like place where he's like evil. No. Like he's yeah. pitiful. He's like such yeah, a baby. Like pathetic. He's yeah. so pathetic. She he's, even laughs at him. Yeah. She laughs at him. She's when like, she, look at your face. Yeah. <laughs> she, she literally looks at him at one point and she's like, that face you're making right now or something. And she just laughs at him. And yeah. it's like, oh my God. Yeah, it's not coming from like a evil place, but he's hurting people in the process of and what he's doing. It's so funny too because he has this like cool guy demeanor about him. Like the sunglasses. The freaking sunglasses. <laughs> he's got oh man, the sunglasses are so cool. And he's always like are. flicking them down. And he always has um uh, he's he's got ticks, right? He's always like rubbing his mouth or yeah. whatever it is. Oh, you're uh, right. Chain smoking, of course, even though he has a, a, a respiratory problem. The doctors are like, yeah, his lungs are collapsing, but this dude's just like blasting cigs <laughs> on set. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but but um, yeah, he has this really like tough guy, cool guy. I'm the director. I'm in control. I know all of this shit demeanor about him and it's like so fake it's so fake he's so weak like it, there's clear like he it's such a facade he's yeah. so he's so fragile and he like masks that with his lies and and his anxiety is just through the roof which he tries to heat like cure through his lying and he he hopes he'll eventually come to an answer that will solve everything he'll actually start working on the movie but yeah we all know how that ends up going i mean this is just a really great depiction of anxiety and depression in general and that kind of i don't know if procrastination is the right thing but like sort of yeah like um just i would say it's being physically unable to start yeah you have so much to do and you are freaking out about it and you just cannot do it you can't even type a word on a page like i've been there man like jesus so procrastination is like a huge symptom of anxiety and also you know like adhd and things like that it's it's a, a huge part of it not being able to start and then he also makes it worse by lying to everyone that he has started that he has it all together um yeah it's 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 sad that that part of it is sad for me i'm kind of skipping to the end of the the movie here but Mm -hmm. for me like as a designer um because what he does at the end is he just scraps the whole thing 
And that's, I mean, that's some meta there, I guess, when I looked up what the hell eight and a half meant. But, you know, for me as a designer, sometimes you like be working on something for so long and you see this is going nowhere. And, you know, just dropping all of it is going to relieve you of so much. Some um, guy says that to him. I don't know his name, but a guy working with him says that to him directly at the end. He's like, Guido, would you rather this could have been the end of you? Would you rather be, would you want to be remembered for this disaster? He says something like that. Right. It's like, you might as well just tear it down, you know, then have this go forward and just be absolutely horrible. JL, you should explain what eight and a half means. I just realized yeah. we didn't even touch on that. So the whole time I'm waiting for like the line in the movie and I didn't really get it. <laughs> I what? just Googled it. What are they, we? They, Some kind of eight, eight and a half. And a half. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, uh, yeah, I Googled it and I'm like, what does eight and a half movie title mean? And then, um, who's the director again? What's his name? Federico yeah, Ferrellini. Yeah. So mm. I think it was like he himself, this is kind of his own meta movie that, um, it's like an unfinished movie. So, you know, the half is that unfinished. He directed eight films before this, and then this is the half. <laughs> so I'm like, whoa. I didn't even know that. <laughs> That's I, I awesome. Really didn't know that. I yeah. don't know why I never thought of the fact that I had no idea why this movie was named yeah, half. <laughs> I, That was the first thing I Googled. I'm like, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> yeah. Um,. I just figured so, it was something about like eight reels of film or something, but yeah. wow, that's it, it's super meta, which I thought was so cool to mm-hmm. name it because originally I think it was supposed to be called the Beautiful Confusion, and then he changed it to eight and a half after. Um, yeah, better, it was really cool. Better, yeah, better, better, better title. Yeah. Um, speaking of the whole meta aspect of it, after the movie, I was thinking about it and. This is this is definitely the most meta thing we've watched, in my opinion, because this might be a bit of a stretch, okay? But he in the in the movie itself, Guido is working on a film where he's kind of just desperately stringing along all these life experiences that he's had, and he's hoping he'll come to this point where he just has an epiphany and it all comes together. Um, and, and it finally turns into this concrete project, but it never does. In the movie, Eight and a Half itself feels like that to me. Like it, like you said, Dale, it's this unfinished it's, thing. Guido's work is unfinished, and it's all these different parts of his life mm-hmm. coming, to, like going in all these different directions. And that's exactly how this movie feels to me. <laughs> There's so many things going yeah. on. But I don't even know what the takeaway or what the end, like, I, I don't know. It, it's just, like, so, yeah. s- the scale of it, it, it feels to him so grand that it's, like, now the whole movie is, just like, very, uh, kind of a confusing watch. And, yeah, I, I totally feel that. And even, like, like, with the uh, his rocket ship, right? It's, like, <laughs> unfinished, this huge, grand set piece or whatever. And... Yeah, like halfway through building, it just it's tearing it down. Yep, I that's my favorite part, or I guess that's my favorite symbol in the movie is the the I guess it's not even it's just the foundation 
and like the scaffolding of Mm -hmm. what's going to be this massive rocket ship in Guido's brain. Uh, And that's such, that's such a representation of everything. His marriage is like that. His attitude towards everything is like that. It's just a really like fractured half idea concept construct that he's like, he should be building, but he isn't, he isn't enriching anything. He's not helping anything get done. He's not helping himself or the people around him. And uh, yeah, I think that was like, not like beating the point of the movie over the head, but like that is like the big symbol is like, Mm. he can't even get the set made. How's he going to get this movie started? (laughs) Right. So um, yeah, I, uh, I really like that aspect of it. And a bunch of other movies have like, you know, cherry picked that. Um, you guys haven't seen it, right? But Synecdoche, New York. No, I really want to though. It's it's uh it's this movie, but about a New Yorker. Like it's this yeah. it's the same thing. So um, I think that the enduring nature of that symbol or like that half finished, too big for, too big to exist in real life because he's trying to make it real life thing has been like copied ad nauseum. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is one of the greatest films ever made, I guess. I mean, a lot of people consider that uh, eight and a half this. And I can see where a lot of different stories draw parts from this movie, like especially at the end when he has all the people from his life kind of coming together. And it's this like kind of weird mix between (laughs) like reality and fantasy. And it reminded me a lot of like big fish the ending of that um <laughs> evangelion ending <laughs> yeah literally yeah. It's the evangelion ending. yeah yeah i and even thought, just like movies about movies right so there's a whole bunch of those um, i thought that scene is another perfect example of where the fantasy or i guess the surrealist vision that guido is having is like like because that's I thought that was a vision. I didn't really think that that was real at all. But like, it's finally him processing this shit. You know what I mean? That makes sense. He has been a tool the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And finally, he's like, wait a minute. I got to stop. I got to appreciate the people around me. You know, he's even holding hands with his wife. Like, it seems like he finally reconciles his... uh, shitty persona in uh in that scene so it it blends the fantasy and reality really well when everyone claps and says congratulations (laughs) congratulations Congratulations. (laughs) um my favorite scene in the movie though is the scene almost a little bit a little bit before that happens it's the press conference scene about the Mm. movie oh same where like the anxiety is at a super, super maximum. And Guido literally has this vision. There's all these producers asking him questions and everyone's to know what's the movie about, what's gonna happen, oh my God, who's doing this, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like this like safety style, like a billion voices talking yeah. at once and the camera's all close up and Guido can't talk. It's terrifying, yeah. It's every anxiety nightmare like we've ever had, you know? Right. And it's like, you just just say something, man. Just 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 speak. And he can't. Even his producer or 
yeah, producer, I think. He's up there, is up there talking on the mic to the journalists, and he's saying, oh, trust me, my director has it under control. He just doesn't want to say anything right now. And then he turns to Guido. He's like, you better get up here and say something right now. Like, I'm saving your ass <laughs> right now. You better get up here. And it's just so anxiety-inducing. It's just yeah. terrifying, the pressure. And he literally, I mean, he dreams about committing suicide. So, like... Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, yeah. When he crawls under the table and everyone immediately notices him crawl under the table and they're like, that's not going to work. And he's like, just give me one second. Just give me one second. It's so bad. Yeah. But it's brilliant. I mean, no, it's, it's like, brilliant. I mean, the situation is horrible, but it's a brilliant yeah. scene. I, I struggle to think of, I mean, other than like Synecdoche, New York, like I talked about, there's not, a whole lot of movies that are literally about being too depressed or too anxious to work on your creative thing. I mean, mm-hmm. we just talked about in a lonely place, which is basically like, eh, he's uninspired and he's violent, but then it's not really about the struggle to work. Whereas this is much more about like the literal mental block of trying to get something done. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Which isn't necessarily fun, but I still think this movie was really fun. I mean, it is a comedy, and mm-hmm. I thought it was really funny. Yeah. Like even when he's show, like shoving people off, like I don't really want to talk to you. He literally is like, "Hey, man, like yeah, I gotta go talk to this guy for a second. I didn't want to talk yeah. to that guy." So. <laughs> yeah, that's such a <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, another another oh, funny thing. This is just really dumb, funny, but like the tap dancing guy when he comes back at the end and it's just like tap dancing. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's like so tap we're not doing sailor. the we're not doing the movie anymore. <laughs> oh my god, so funny! Oh, and there's that weird scene with uh, the, the 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 magician or whatever yeah. projecting the thoughts into the old woman's head. And like, the magician what? guy is he's kind of haunting in a he's weird scary. way. He kind of scares me, and I don't know why. I think it's kind of like why people are afraid of clowns. It's kind of similar. Yeah. He, has, he has that same kind of vibe. He's got the, the just, mind makeup almost. Yeah, yeah, he's freaky looking. Um, so, Andy, do you have any like questions? Because I guess I, I guess before this, you had kind of said like you you don't really get it. I don't want to like out you in public. Like, oh, Andy oh, doesn't no, get the movie, fine. but. Uh, <laughs> No, I think that, um, let me think, I don't know how to say it. So the movie covers so many different topics that I think it's hard to say that the movie has a concrete like point to get. But <laughs> the funny thing is, is it's so meta that I think that the fact there's no point to get in parts of it is is Fellini's point. You know, he's saying that, He's saying that, you know, Guido is bringing together all these strings of his life and trying to, you know, cover all these different aspects of his life um, that it's just uh, there's so many different topics going on and different things to cover. And that's how the movie itself feels as well to me. It kind of feels that like that unfinished work of Guido's that has so many different interesting aspects going on 
but it's hard to pull a point. But there's nothing wrong with that. I think there's multiple things going on, and that's the point. There's just yeah. so many different topics being brought up. Um, it's hard to come up with one concrete point. I, th- I think I think you could say that it's about um, the creative process and unfinished work and things like that, but it tackles a lot. It's kind of just a life movie. <laughs> yeah, and something I wanted to add, because you were talking about stringing things from his life that I don't think we did really talk about, is um, when they're doing the screen test scenes, and then so good. literally... Like every single person that he, or I guess the actors that he brought on, it just perfectly mirrors all the fantasies and I guess the interactions that he had with all the women in his life earlier in the movie. And then even then, he like runs away from that because that's like the visual, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is not <laughs> what I actually envisioned. Right. And like, all my problems are right here on the screen. And then it's he runs away from the theater. Yeah. So. Oh, what? What a movie! I, um, I think you, I think you can critique and praise this movie at the same time for tackling so many different subjects. <laughs> it's, yeah. There's so much going on in this film. Um, like if you wanted to just focus on the Catholicism aspect and the repression of his sexual urges, you could go on into that for an hour if you wanted to, and you could argue that's the main, one of the main points, which it is, but there's so many different things. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it hard. We don't want to be here for the next 36 hours. Uh, <laughs> right. upload so we didn't even, we didn't even talk about the harem scene. So we can uh, yeah. skip over that. Oh, I, we, I think we hammered the point of the harem scene pretty well anyway. So, yeah. Um, I, I guess uh, I guess my my real takeaway, or I guess the thing that rings the most true to me is that he's trying to uh, the way that I read it, I guess I should say, is he's trying to he's trying to do this thing for someone for other people. He keeps saying like I don't remember. He's like, oh, it's honest, it's real, or whatever. I don't I don't know what he keeps. His he has this critic friend. Right. The critic friend is a great character because the critic friend is always like, this shit sucks. Like this, <laughs> like this movie yeah. is trash. The one voice of reason in the whole movie, like everyone else is so taken up with Guido. And I think that's the problem is that everyone is so like, oh, Guido, you're so good. You're so good yeah. at what you do. You know, he's like the special baby boy who's never been told no. Right. And... um. He's trying to do this thing that he thinks will help. I think he thinks it's going to help other people. Like he, he's going to do this thing to help the people in his life or make yeah. sense of it. And he's like, wait a minute. I don't have to make a movie about that. I can just handle my emotional problems healthily, normally, and be a functioning member of society. <laughs> and I think that's uh, that's my favorite takeaway is that any. Mm-hmm. He has a redemption arc, despite yeah, being right. a literal piece of shit for the entire movie. Once um, again, men go to therapy. Yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, I do agree that this movie drags. Yeah, that, I, I think that was my that's one of my main critiques, especially 
in the past, in the last hour or so, it, it felt like it was dragging for me and it felt a little bit too much like a weird fever dream that I was having. <laughs> and I know that's kind of, I know that's kind of the point, but it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily an enjoyable watch at the end for me. It was interesting more than it was enjoyable for me. I think I did kind of see myself in him in regards to, you know, starting projects and um, I guess, you know, the expectation that this is going to be such a great thing. I mean, you know, you guys know me and then Tyler, you went to elementary school with me where everyone's like, oh, Jail's an artist. Jail's the best artist in the school and all this other stuff. And I mean, I definitely felt that kind of pressure when I was watching it, um, which is why I think this is definitely an emotional movie for me to watch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I definitely agree as like, I've started so many things and not seen them through to completion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to count like literally we'd be here for days counting that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I value the learning experience just as much. And we don't see the resolution for Guido, but I like to imagine that he's, at peace with what he's done to some degree. Um, He finally seems happy at the end, which I think is good. Um, Or at least it seems like he's doing something, um, you know, something that you would do if you were actually happy or he seems to be processing whatever's happening to him pretty well. Although it is a fantasy again. So who knows? Maybe he's just, maybe he's just retreating back into the mind even further. Um, and I think that's what really I don't want to I don't want to spoil synecdoche for you guys. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe we'll do that one day. But um, the way that this movie handles um, the dealing with the depression and the anxiety made me enjoy it more than I enjoyed synecdoche. Uh, New York is what I'll say. I I think especially after we've talked about it. Oh, I think talking about it with you has also made me like it more. <laughs> I think, and I think, yeah. I think it's because I also have to say I think Tyler, like you, especially, just had a better grasp on this one than me. I think it was just really hard for me to like, like understand this movie. <laughs> I was, and I think maybe I was trying too hard to understand it while I was going through it. I think I should have just like absorbed this. <laughs> it's. I think I was thinking I, yeah. a lot during the movie, and I was like, I mean, like, it's definitely one of those that you need to watch yeah. again if you're going to sit down for <laughs> the full two hours yeah. again. <laughs> but and I think yeah. I think something that I enjoyed a lot more, like, well, I enjoyed it during the movie, but now that we're talking about it, it really does handle the anxiety of the creative process. It just how deep of a hole you can go down with procrastination and lying and how just horrendous that can be. Mm-hmm. It, it covers that so well and it does it in a really entertaining way. So I did really enjoy that aspect of it a lot. And the, and the characters are cool too. You, too, you, need, you know, each of the women he talks to, you know, um, so, you know, some of the people he talks to are more interesting than others, but his relationships are all really entertaining in a way (laughs) so i did like that too the casting is amazing i yeah i think everyone really leans so far into their character um that it becomes i mean 
you know, a lot of movies are like this hyper reality thing where it's like, oh, they're clearly acting, but I can ignore it. I mean, we thought, sure, we just talked about like Humphrey Bogart going from zero to a hundred in a second. Like that's, there's not actually people like that, but there's people who are close. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And there's no one as like narcissistic as the French actress, but there's people who are close. And I think yeah. that's a really fun and playful, like, um, angle to it and then like fuck up barbara Steele's character is like she's almost like over it she's like almost like a nihilist about the movie like she like she's the um uh the, what the what the hell's her name uh gloria uh the oh. the, the one who's yeah who's dating the older guy i thought oh, she yeah, was yeah. great i thought she, she was, was so good she's awesome oh my god She's so cool too. Yeah. She's kind of like this, like, I don't even know how to describe it. She's kind of like the E girl of this movie. That's, that's what I was thinking when I saw yeah. her the whole time. She's, she's kind of like, uh, I don't even know. She's just really unique and kind of like dreamy and is always saying these interesting things. Um, I really enjoyed her character. I liked, I liked her as like a philosophical foil for, uh, uh-huh. For Guido, and even for Mezabota, the old ass dude who she's dating, she's like totally like this just ideological like wealth of knowledge. And yeah, another this is just a small thing. Love that they had her speak in English like randomly throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that. That really took that really shocked me at first. I was like, oh, that's cool. This this movie is cool because it'll like. It's Italian and French. It's like an Italian movie produced in France or something. So they'll be talking in Italian and then someone will say something in French and then someone will be like, you look great today in English. And it's just like... (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Super playful. Like very fun. um, Despite being disorienting as hell at first. I'm really glad you brought up Gloria because she was one of my favorite characters. And then... Uh, as far as acting too, she was great. And then I, I, uh, acting wise, I really liked um, whoever played his wife, Louisa. I thought mm-hmm. she did a great job. And then Carla was also so good. I really liked, <laughs> I really liked the Carla character. She was really over the top, but in a really entertaining way. Okay, his wife was played by Nicole Francois Florence Dreyfus, or. <laughs> She was really good. Professionally known as Anouk, A-N-O-U-K. Literally one word. She's like the prince Anouk. of acting. Yeah, I she feel just, like if you if you have a name like that, you must be really famous. If, you, if your name's been short to like one, like a really short name, <laughs> you're just known as that. Yeah. Yeah, prince type shit. So, yeah, she was really good. And she's heartbreaking um, because she's so loyal to Guido. Mm-hmm. Even though he's such a shitter, right? Um, and she sees through him too, which is sad. Like she knows, and it's and he knows she knows, and he keeps doing it. Louisa redemption arc because she gets the hell out of there. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, man. Um, geez. Okay, we. I, I don't want to say we've gone on long enough, but the the one last thing I, I want to bring up is early in the movie, he's talking to the production designer who wants to know about the costumes or something. And he goes mm-hmm. into that room and it's just chaos. There's just shit everywhere. And then 
the the guys like, hey, what are we going to do about these costumes or the the you know the um, spaceship or any of this shit? What's the movie going to look like? And then he's like, ah, you know, we'll we'll get there. And then he hears like giggling behind like a, like a set curtain or something. He just like tears it down, and there's like two young girls. He's, and the the costume director is like, oh, these are my nieces. They came along to meet you. Oh yeah. And then he's like, oh hey, do you want to part in my movie? Like what? Like, what? <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. That, that just to me like, or no, they they actually they they ask, like, can we be in the movie? And Guido's like, yeah, sure. Like fuck it. I don't I don't care. <laughs> yeah, and one, of, and one of them's like, oh, I have a cousin who's six feet tall. Can she be in the movie too? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's a really entertaining. He, it's just so totally captures that, like, he's not thinking about this movie at all. And it's, oh, it's great. It's awesome. But, um, Andy, you said it best. Talking about this movie is more fun than watching this movie. For sure. Yeah. But I also think this conversation has made me like it more, which is funny. But also, um, yeah, talking about it's a lot of fun just because there's just a million things you could dissect about it, which is which does make it a good movie. Yeah. It's there's it's it's incredible how many things he he throws into this. I think um, JL said it uh, sitting and experiencing it and not trying to overthink it is a hard uh, order for people like us who watch movies like very intently. Like we're always trying to like, where's this going to go? Like what's going to happen? You know what I mean? And uh, I'm like always looking for symbols or something, right? Like (laughs) just like sit back, absorb it. I think Andy, actually you said that earlier. Right. Like I needed to just absorb this whole movie. I think um, having seen Synecdoche, New York, which again, it's like, very similar. I think I liked eight and a half more because I saw it second. I think if you guys watched Synecdoche, you would think it's the masterpiece that everyone else thinks it is. So um, I should watch that. I should really watch that on Netflix. But um, oh, nice. Yeah, maybe when political things blow over, or I guess not blow over, but hopefully get resolved, uh, progress happens. Um, we can do a Synecdoche watch because I do want to see it again with this newfound perspective that you guys have helped me through. Um, yeah. I think... Uh, I Not to like talk about like A24 movies, but I think those are good practice in letting the experience hit you, not trying to figure it out too hard. Yeah. Really, I'm just thinking about Midsommar and the lighthouse yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are probably the biggest ones that are like just just enjoy the experience dog <laughs> like, you don't, have to think about, don't think about it too much i think that was seriously my fault like my 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 own issue when watching this movie is like it got into my head and i was like what is happening <laughs> i just i just let, I just let, let that envelop brain for the last hour and a half I was like, what am I even watching and I should have even been thinking about that I should have just been taking it in well in the same way that I was kind of like when something gonna happen in in a lonely yeah. place <laughs> yeah which like there's shit happening it's important mm-hmm. gotta have patience yeah, <laughs> okay um 
Final closing thoughts on eight and a half. JL, why don't you start? Uh, I know we are champions of, you know, challenging movies on this podcast. Um, this might not be the movie for you <laughs> if you're a kind of a more casual watcher. But, you know, if you want to, uh, like, if we convince you to get Criterion Collection, like, definitely give this one a watch because there are... You can find where other films have been influenced by this movie. Um, and this is like one of the OGs of movies about movies. So I still recommend it. Hell yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I, I thought it was good. Um, I think this conversation was really enjoyable. And I think it reminded me of a lot of moments in the film that I forgot that I liked so much. And I think partially it was because I got caught up um, in trying to understand the movie and didn't just take it in. Um, so I forgot about some of those scenes and how even funny some of them were. Um, so it's a good movie, definitely worth watching. Um, and it, a really unique experience. It, it covers a lot of different themes. I think some of the, the themes are probably explored better than others. I really like the um, the issue with procrastination and anxiety and the creative process. I really love that part of it. Um, and then, yeah, his, his relationship with women is really interesting. There's so many things to explore. It did drag for me at points, and I was bored at certain parts, but a good movie, and I'm glad I watched it. And I think I'm going to give it another watch at some point. And yeah, it's a fun one to talk about. I, I will say it might be more more enjoyable to talk about it than to watch it, but I don't know. Now now that I think about some of the things in this film, there are some really enjoyable parts of this movie. So it's good. Um, there are parts I like more than others. Yeah, I recommend it. And uh, yeah, I mean, just to echo the guys, this movie rocks. Uh, I think you could hear how excited I got talking about it, um, but it, I had a really fun time with this. I'm not super versed in uh, Italian cinema that isn't spaghetti westerns, um, but I thought this was a pretty good, pretty great um, introduction. Uh, glossing over some quick things that I think we're going to agree on that aren't really worth touching on, but the technical aspects of the movie were all great. Uh, every mm -hmm. shot looked really good. The lighting was really good. The camera angles, the set pieces were all really, really interesting. The costumes were great. Um, the score was great. Um, but I definitely agree in the aspect that this is not for everybody. And even parts mm -hmm. of this were not for me. And it even, it even verges on boring. Um, in yeah. Parts. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of going off on a tangent, but you mentioned the ca the camera angles and the technical aspects. There's There was one part that really stuck out to me, actually. I think it's right before the kind of harem scene, mm -hmm. and he's walking in, and then the, the camera uh, cuts hands to a woman, and she looks at the camera directly, and she goes, oh, he's such a darling, or something, and it's like zoomed in right on her face, mm -hmm. and it's just really unique. I forget. I, it just really stuck uh, stuck out to me. The the movie does some cool stuff with the camera. My, and this is like so basic to pull away from this movie, but the dream sequence at the beginning where there's the shot down his leg 
Mm. And there's the rope all the way down to the beach. And there's the guy on the ground, like, pulling him yeah. down. How the fuck did they do that in 1960? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> what the hell? How did you do that? That's crazy. <laughs> that <laughs> so, was really cool. You know, it's not a perfect... I didn't give it a perfect score, but um, I can see why this is an enduring masterpiece. And what I really want to do, what I really, how I really want to experience this... It's like at home, there's so many distractions. Like, like it's easy to just pause the movie and like go do something else for a little bit. I want to see this sitting in a theater, uh, mm-hmm. big screen, huge sound system. No, no temptation to put on my phone. Like tub of popcorn, maybe a beer if we're at a gateway. You know, like if yeah, I'm yeah. back in Ohio or something. But like, I really want to experience this in like the cinema atmosphere. Um, not going to happen anytime soon, uh, COVID, but yeah. also it's like, hey, Ohio's reopening soon, but I mean, it's still not safe, but just saying. <laughs> yeah, New York ain't. New York is New York. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think, I think seeing this in full format would really just be an awesome trip. I agree. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it, there were parts of it that were kind of kind of lulled me but it's you cannot deny the impacts of this movie and just the ambition of it mm-hmm. so i think i think i think that like i like the ambition and the themes it covers and the discussion of it more than some parts of the movie itself but it's still like such a necessary watch because it's so unique and just a really cool movie. Yeah. Amen, brother. Great stuff, Amen. guys. So, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna call the run of show there. Yeah. Um, this has been our wonderful discussion of in a lonely place in eight and a half. Uh, I don't have any questions prepped for this week. I've been uh, busy protesting fascism, but um, <laughs> as as you guys yeah. have too. Um, so my real my question is JL, your movie, your, sorry, your episode, oh, for, uh, hold on, but let me, let me, let me do this. Let me do my thing here real quick. JL, your yeah, episode yeah. was robbed by the evil that is <sighs> Apple voice memos. The app. Oh my God. It was my hands my, together. I'm ready. It was, it was mainly my technical too i felt so bad well don't feel too bad because my shit crashed all day today so and we we still had something which i'll edit out but whatever um yeah keep going though so given the fact that the the japan special the the jl wheelhouse the the jl runs the show the lost episode given the fact that the best we're gonna get from that is a couple quotes jl tell us what we're doing next week we're doing Japan to Electric Boogaloo Redux episode <laughs> where both of these movies are about to be bangers. <laughs> We're going to have a fun time with, uh, well, we talked about in the last episode, Satoshi Kon's Millennium Actress. We're going to do a sister film to that, Perfect Blue. <laughs> Banger. Oh, and I've then, never seen it, guys. Let's go! <laughs> I'm so excited. And then... Another one, we did Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which we're going to do another food one, just Tampopo 
in lieu in lieu of like yes. or I guess it, yeah yeah and uh it's similar to like airplane vibes but also another love letter to a very important aspect of Japan which is their food culture so I'm really excited to do both of these next week or I guess oh, two weeks from now whatever Dale you picked <laughs> such good movies <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be a crazy good episode. <laughs> I So the, the Tom Popo story, I, I'll, I'll probably tell this again, but I want to tell it right now. I took a Japanese cinema class when I was an undergrad, and we watched Tom Popo right in the middle of it. And I walked out of our screening of it, and I texted JL, and I was like, bro, you got to like, like <laughs> right now, bro. Like, this is so you, man. Oh, that movie. I, I'm so excited. Uh, obviously, I didn't see what Andy thinks because I think you and I have both seen both of these. So I'm excited to rewatch them because I didn't yeah, uh, haven't seen them in a while. So I'm excited. Perfect Blue is going to be like, I'm going to need to like light some candles, like maybe <laughs> r- run a bath, like just really like get zen before I watch Perfect Blue again. Oh, man. Well, that's awesome. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Let's do it. Great episode, guys. Great stuff. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll leave it at that. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. I am going to be working on getting this podcast distributed through Apple Music, uh, Overcast, Stitcher, etc. here in the coming weeks. I know I've been promising that since we started this thing in April, March, but I'm finally free to do it. It's going to happen. We're going to have this everywhere. Thank you, as always, for listening. And check back in two weeks to see what's now screening.